our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12 as we look at verses 22 through 37. Now if you'll look in the bulletin, you'll see that the title of the message is The Unpardonable Sin. I know that most people have an idea of what it is or what they think it is. We're going to be talking about it today in the passage. Also, if you'll look tonight, if you'll be back, I don't know why the Lord had me uh, preaching two controversial messages uh, on the same day, but Judges um, 11 and 12, the last part of 11 and first part of 12, be careful what you vow. Uh, if you'll remember, Jephthah uh, vowed that whoever, whatever came out of the house first, uh, if the Lord would give him victory, then that would be... Uh, Sacrifice unto him. Did he kill her? Uh, did he have her killed or not? We uh, we're going to be talking about that tonight. So uh, uh, we're going to have a fun time uh, in God's house talking about these two controversial subjects. There are different opinions as to what the unpardonable sin is. Uh, we will look at some of it, but. When does one commit the unpardonable sin? I've heard worried souls, and I have had worried souls come to me and mention and question if they had committed this. One told me, I've crossed that line, and now can't, I can't be saved. I said, why? Have you ever received Christ as your Savior? Have you ever prayed the prayer and you were sincere? And he says, yes, when I was younger and since then. But the preacher preaching told me that if, since I was having questions or anyone that was having questions in the sermon, in the service, if they didn't come forward and get that right, then they have crossed God's deadline and they committed the unpardonable sin. He was worried to death. Some say it's rejecting Christ continually until you die. Others say it's cursing God. There are many different things and ideas about what the unpardonable sin is. And we're going to be looking at the passage but today to see what it is. But to understand this, we've got to know the context. And so I want you to... Follow me as we read verses 22 through 37, and we'll first, the very first point needs to be the context of the passage, and we'll be looking at that. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this is very important. This man cannot be the son of David, can he? Now, you remember earlier, you remember when he healed two and they said, Son of David? They cried out, Son of David, heal us. So the crowd is beginning to recognize some of this and put the puzzle together with, by the help of the Holy Spirit. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, he said to them, this is a 
very strong statement in showing his deity. Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they say, be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon me. He's clearly letting them know who he is. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off the property unless he first binds the strong man, Satan, and then he will plunder his house? So then he says, after saying all this and after what you've seen with me and after what you've heard me preach, he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin, and here it is, and blasphemy shall be forgiven men. So there is blasphemy. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. What is he meaning there? And whoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Here he is. If you speak a word against Jesus, it can be forgiven you. But whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, is the Holy Spirit better than Jesus? No, we know he's not. They're all co-equal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does he mean there? Whoever is, and it, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever shall speak against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak against good, uh, what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills a heart, and the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak they shall render account for it in the day of judgment for by your words you shall be justified and by your words you shall be condemned now we're going to need a lot of God's grace today aren't we to have this revealed to us I don't want to just share something with you out of my opinion I want the Holy Spirit to speak to your hearts so and there's many different views on this. So you be in prayer as we look at this passage today. Father, just help us. And the help that we need is from you. And we can only receive it by your grace. And so we just ask that our eyes and our hearts be open to the truth. That it might comfort some souls that are troubled maybe over this. That it might convict some souls in seeing the need to receive Christ as their Savior. That it might instruct others so that they might be able to teach others and help others with this. Thank you, God, for your truth. Help it to be revealed in such a fashion that you can illuminate our minds and our hearts to 
become more conformed to the image of Christ by way of understanding this passage and applying it to our lives by way of the Holy Spirit doing its work in our lives today. Thank you, God, for this opportunity. We just ask that you work in a mighty way. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, the context of the passage. Let's go back to it. What is it talking about? Well, really to get the context, I want you to go to chapter 13. Let's just turn ahead to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Because this helps us see what is going on. You need to get the feeling of the passage. You need to get the understanding of the passage. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And great multitudes gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole multitude was standing on the beach. Now there is a big crowd in there. So what is drawing the crowd? Well, we know that miracles have drawn some. But what is exactly drawing this crowd? Getting it bigger. And we know what's going on as we have read in chapter 12 and, and reading these verses in chapter 12. What has happened and what is happening. Something has produced a crowd. Yes, miracles to a degree. But something that demands their attention. If you see crowds, you usually have a tendency to want to go over to that crowd to see what's going on, what's drawing that crowd. Last night we were driving down the road and there were tons, I mean many, many, numerous fire engines, ambulances, uh, police cars, all of this. I mean, they just filled the road to the left as we were traveling down this way. And cars were slowing down to see what was going on. Because they wanted to see what drew this, all this attention here. Well, when you get to Matthew 13, it tells us that this great crowd has gathered. But in chapter 12 of Matthew... The dynamic that produces this crowd, the big, a big portion or a big part of it is conflict. What's going on here? Conflict between the Pharisees and Jesus. And the crowd is seeing this and hearing this. And so, you know, it, it, I remember being in elementary school. Uh, going out on the playground and everybody running to a certain section of it. I mean, there was a big crowd gathering around. And you, the closer you get to that crowd, you see what's going on. There's a conflict going on. There's a fight going on. Boom, 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 you know. Teachers are running over there to break it up. Well, there is a conflict here in chapter 12. And it's between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees have accused as we've already talked about, the disciples of Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. You know, they pulled some ears off and they plucked it and to eat the corn and all. Well, that's by their tradition, not the law necessarily, but their added tradition, you remember? Uh, it, it caused them to be breaking the law according to the Pharisees. And 
really they were accusing Jesus more than they were accusing his disciples. Because why? Because Jesus was allowing it to happen. I dare you. How can you allow them to do this and it be considered work on the Sabbath? Well, it wasn't work. Jesus showed them that taking care of a need is more important than their tradition. He goes into the synagogue on the Sabbath to teach and he heals a man with a withered hand. They accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. He then shares a parable and he uses the sheep in that parable to show them the importance of taking care of one's need over their little traditions that they have mounted up. And once again, they're proven wrong. So the tension is growing. I mean, you can sense, you, can, you, you know when there's, you know, there's tension in the air. You can, you've been around it, and there is tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. And so the Pharisees, uh, you know, went out, it says, from Jesus to conspire to destroy him. And He's not playing around on their timetable. So the people that he, were, he was healing that decided to follow him, he withdrew and he told them not to say anything. He's not letting them manipulate Pharisees, manip, uh, manipulate him on their timetable. He's going to the cross. He's headed that way. But it's not time for him to go to the cross yet. John tells us in the gospel, no man takes my uh, about Jesus, he says, no man takes my life from me, for I lay down my life um, willingly for my sheep. And Jesus uh, tells us his hour had not yet come also. So the Pharisees are not going to rule him and create his timetable for him. So Jesus withdraws and uh, he tells them not to reveal his identity to others. It's, in other words, it's not his time yet to go to the cross. And he quotes a passage from Isaiah concerning the servant passages, speaking about the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah, the suffering uh, Savior. And, and uh, here is uh, this passage is speaking about a universal reach. It's not just speaking about Israel suffering on behalf of Israel. It goes wider than that. He's talking about in this passage suffering on behalf of not just the Jewish people but the Gentiles. Matthew 12, 21. Boy, that was quite a declaration there to move from just the Jews, God's chosen people, to the whole world. So uh, he says in, in essence here, if you have any questions about who I am, then just let Isaiah speak to you and reveal to you who I am. Am I not performing miracles in God's name? Am I not uh, you know, teaching the truth? Am I not fulfilling the scripture before your very eyes as the Old Testament prophet prophesies? And you Pharisees should know, you, you should know you scribes and Pharisees of scripture so we're going to look next at the response, the response to the miracle. It looks like, well, the Pharisees would admit, hey, man, we're wrong. We are people of the scripture. We see this. We know this. So let's rejoice. Jesus is the Messiah. 
but it's got mixed responses here. It says in Matthew 12, 22, Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the demon or uh, the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitude were amazed and began to say, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But what happened with the Pharisees? They had gone out to plot against Jesus. So the first response was one of amazement. Look at the word amazed. It means to be beside oneself with amazement and wonder wow look at this this is something in other words it's it's knocking them out of their senses or better yet out of their socks you know they are they're just they're just in awe and so it leads to the re, re, rhetorical question this man cannot be the son of david can he and so they're beginning to put together that puzzle even more so. They now see that he's performing miracles and signs from Isaiah. And he spoke, uh, you know, that spoke about the coming Messiah. And so this is a, another declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. And as I mentioned earlier, you know that the two blind men cried out earlier in chapter 9 of uh, uh, Matthew uh, about son of David heal us they recognized him and so this is the first response from the crowd amazement wow it's unique it's different it's different than anything that we've ever seen but then there's a second response the Pharisees hear and, and uh, say this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub the ruler of the demons you see there their feelings were angry towards Jesus. And they were mounting, getting bigger and bigger. They were desperate. But their reasoning, they had a bad argument. They, it was bad theology and, and a lame attempt. The intent was to poison the minds of the people. They're scattering the people. Poison the minds of the people against Jesus. So here's the third point. Jesus' reply to the Pharisees' accusation. We're told by Matthew, and knowing their thoughts, which shows us uh, that uh, God only knows man's thoughts. This is the disclosure of his, his deity here. He said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and any city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand? First of all, he says, your statement. Look at how absurd it is. It's absurd. Use a little logic, Pharisees. You know the scripture. You know the Bible. If I am the prince of demons, and if I cast out demons out of a demon-possessed person, then what am I doing? I'm dividing my own house. Can't you see that? Use little logic here. One thing I want to throw out with this. Jesus is also letting us know what's going on in our world. Not only then, but today. It hasn't changed. 
Satan is still here in this world. It is a spiritual warfare. Demons do exist. He is a leader. He has a regime. And he and his demonic regime opposes God and his work. And that's what they're doing here. Working through the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious um, organization. So the primary focus of their conspiracy is to stop Jesus from his ministry. Why? Because you see, the ultimate goal, and this is so very important, the ultimate goal of the demonic is to rob God of the glory he will receive through the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. He always wants to rob God of his glory. Why? Because he wants a glory. He wants a glory. So Jesus also shows them how inconsistent the charge is. He takes it a little further. And if I by Beelzebub cast out demons by whom do your sons cast them out? Consequently, they shall be your judges. Wow. Sons there is not referring to biological sons. It's referring to disciples here. And Jesus is saying, you're biased in your comments, in your statement, in your accusation. Certain followers of, of you cast out demons. And we know this by the Jewish historian Josephus. He said that he reported that they, uh, they used strange and exotic incantations and uh, cultic formulas in their rites when they did this. Luke even tells us that their group of seven brothers, sons of the chief priest named Sceva, practiced this exorcism. When they heard about the apostles' great success in casting out demons, they decided to try this new formula that they had heard. In the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I uh, adjure you, adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches in Acts 19, 13, and 14. They thought there was some magical formula in the, uh, or magic in the formula there. But they found out that it wasn't in the formula. It was in the power of the person, Jesus Christ. And this is how the demons responded over in Acts. He said to the uh, seven men, he said, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> he showed them. Jesus points out to the Pharisees how prejudiced they are in approving this exorcism uh, attempted by their sons, their, their disciples. When they reject his miracles. So it showed how biased they were. And Jesus further indicts the Pharisees by telling them to let their exorcist sons, their disciples, be their judges. In other words, let them tell you by who, whose power they cast out demons. If by Satan's power... They would condemn themselves. If by God's power, they would go against their argument and accusation that they had against Jesus. Well, now we move to Jesus declaring his lordship to everyone. 
He demonstrates his lordship and has demonstrated his lordship in the sense in verse 22 when he cast out demons. Now he declares it with this statement. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Okay? You say it's by Satan. But what about, now I'm telling you, your disciples, who are they casting them out? Let them be your judge. You would say, oh, they're casting them out by God's power. Okay, then I am also. And so in turn, what he's doing here is he's declaring his lordship. If he cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come, he's telling them. And how do we know that? Because Jesus here exercises his rule. When the king has come, he exercises his rule. And once again, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. And the conflict here begins to get even worse. It gets stronger and stronger and more intense. And Jesus is not doing this for some publicity stunt. It's not a healing crusade. These things all have happened for a purpose, for a reason. And that is to reveal to them that the kingdom of God is upon them. It is here, for I am here, Jesus says. He has arrived. Could this be the son of David? The Messiah has arrived. He's telling them, you're all, in, in essence, he's saying you're right on target with your question of who I am. The dawning realization was coming upon them at that declared that the Messiah had come. The king was here. Now Jesus clearly illustrates who he, who, who he is and what he's accomplishing. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds a strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is telling them, by casting out the demons, I have not only bound the demons, but their master. The man who was demon-possessed, was Satan's trophy. But he's not anymore. He was Satan's trophy as long as he was blind, as long as he was mute, as long as he was demon-possessed. But Jesus came and he, uh, he bound the strong man and he took this trophy away from Satan. He demonstrates his authority. He demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his identity. He is real, revealing that, that what he is teaching and by what he has done, he is the Messiah, the Son of God. This is an inductive form of reasoning. You see what I've taught, you see what I've done, come to your conclusion. It proves that I am the Son of God. Who but God could enter the uh, strong man's house, Satan, and successfully bind him and carry off his property? The death blow to Satan was inflicted at the cross and actualized fully in the future. But we can realize it and see it in part now, can't we? As we live victoriously. One day we're going to be delivered from this old sin uh, world and, and we're going to experience it in a resurrected body. And, and we're going to experience the fullness of it. But right now, there's still sin in this world. But we can have victory over sin. Through Jesus Christ and yielding to him. So he exposes the Pharisees' evil. 
How does he do it? By warning them about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I know we're coming to the close of the hour, but you needed this built up to understand this. And I'm going to just say this, and we'll talk about it even more so next week. But you see, now comes the most convicting charge anywhere you can find in the Bible. The next two verses are perhaps the most misunderstood and most feared in the whole Bible. Now, what is the unpardonable sin? I know you want me to go ahead and tell you. This is why it's so important to understand what we talked about, the context. You see, the Pharisees have just slandered God. The so-called righteous Pharisees have just blasphemed. Who? The Holy Spirit. Now, the Pharisees are among the crowds, and we'll talk about the, uh, the scattering and, and, uh, or the bringing together uh, next week, but they have just blasphemed the Holy Spirit by contributing God's power to Satan. I mean, God's power to Satan. What Jesus has done to Satan's work. This is so very important. Here Jesus is saying there's no neutrality. There's no neutrality when it comes to the revelation of who Jesus is. You have had all of this revealed. It is divided between who hear him and see his miracles and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is here. The son of David is here. And those who conspire against him and scheme to destroy him. If against me, then they are scattering instead of gathering and that was a horrifying word for the Jews because it meant it had the idea of being lost and and cut off you remember when the Jews were scattered when they were taken into captivity and they were placed here and there in different places they were cut off weren't they from their tribe and they hated that the article used with the noun blasphemy refers to a specific sin though this sin of blasphemy is sin claiming that the miracles that were done by Jesus were of Beelzebub. Blaspheming the real author, the Holy Spirit. Now this is very important because if they were done, they saw the miracles, they heard Jesus personally teaching then it seems, at least to me, that in the context, it would be a historical context. By that I mean, you would have to see Jesus performing the miracles, and you would have to hear him teach, and you would have to contribute it to the work of the devil. Now, can this be duplicated today? Well, Jesus would have to come back and teach and perform miracles, wouldn't he? It seems. So you're saying the unpardonable sin was in the historical context. Basically, I'm saying that. Can anybody commit anything like that today? Well, there is the unbelieving. And, of course, logic 
if you continue to unbelieve and uh, and disbelieve until you die, well then, <laughs> you know, that is unforgivable, isn't it? But it's not what he's speaking about, I don't think, here. I think this is historical. Yes, I think that that we can reject the Spirit of God and reject the Spirit of God and reject the Spirit of God and harden our heart and harden our heart and harden our heart to the point where we die without Jesus. And be unforgiven. Have not received the forgiveness. Rejected it. But as far as blaspheming the Holy Spirit, uh, contributing to work by seeing what Jesus is doing to Satan, I think that must require them. Must, must be required then. Now, I know theologians, and good theologians would disagree with me. And they would say basically what I said about rejecting, rejecting, rejecting. But that is talking about forgiveness. And didn't he say that even blaspheming against Christ about, uh, about the Savior could be forgiven? In other words, you can reject Jesus and still be forgiven for your sin. I know, I've known people who have been convicted and left the service and then later on in another service continue to be uh, convicted. My dad, for instance, the preacher came out and he, he shared with him and, and dad adamantly rejected him. But was he being convicted? Yes, he was being convicted. And the preacher said, I thank you for allowing me to come out, Charles. I'd like to come back and visit with you sometime. And he did. About six months or a year later, he came back. And guess whose heart was ready to receive Christ then? He had rejected the gospel earlier. But that didn't mean that he had, had committed an unpardonable sin. He received Christ at that time and was saved. So what, I'm, what, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that, number one, sin needs to be taken seriously. Whether you believe that the unpardonable sin can be committed today or not, it needs to be taken seriously. You can reject the Holy Spirit and harden your heart to the point where you can walk out of this service or, or somebody can walk out of a service or walk away from a, a, a witnessing thing and, and get in the car and drive down the road just like we saw all those lights. Somebody was probably killed that night in an accident and not be saved. You're not going to be forgiven. Here or future. It's for all eternity. But you're going to be without Christ. Why? Because you chose to not receive Christ and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit when he came upon you. But number two is, I think that we need to be very careful 
and also taking sin lightly as far as believers. You see, what did it take for forgiveness to occur? Jesus stepped out of heaven who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God, not righteousness of ourselves, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus who sinned, who did not sin, but bore our sins. He suffered and died on Calvary's cross for us. He experienced hell for us so that we could be forgiven and spend eternity with him. So yes, I know 1 John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, restoring us to that fellowship, that's great. But we just take it flippantly. Well, I can confess. I can go ahead and do this. I can confess later. I I do this. I'm be forgiven later. What an attitude. Or being tempted, I, I know I shouldn't do this, but temptation feels better than, than uh, you know, at least for time being, than uh, the pleasure does, and than taking a stand and being under the Spirit's self-control. That's just, that's just tough. I can be forgiven. That is the wrong kind of attitude, isn't it? We're walking all over the cross when we do that in spite of the grace of God. Yes, you can be forgiven. But forgiveness is a change of mind and a change of direction. So what we need to do is we need to ask God to forgive us. Don't take it lightly, and we need to start taking a stand and start realizing that, that God is a holy God. And that we need to live under the, his guidance and under his power. And when we do slip, immediately confess that and forsake it. And we need to be very careful. The words that they said, God said that they would be judged for them, right? That shows us also we need to be very careful with what we say at all times. We need to be very careful. Doesn't mean that we can't be strong in what we say, but just be very careful. When we have done something or said something wrong or had the wrong attitude or wrong speech, we need to confess it. Don't let pride stand in the way. All of us are faced with that, aren't we? I mean, we have problems, spouses, we have problems, churches, we have problems at work, we have problems in the activity world, sports world, wherever it might be. We need to be very careful. God is a God 
that is holy, who is holy, but yet a God, not only who is just, but that is gracious. But don't push one or the other. Balance it out. God loves you. He wants you to be in close fellowship with him. That's the only place that we can truly enjoy our life. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, just want to thank you.